Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Merge Records, an independent record label based in North Carolina that's home to bands like Magnetic Fields and Arcade Fire. Joining us are Merge Records co-founders Laura Balance and Mac McCollum. You may also know them as founding members of the rock band Superchunk. In our conversation, Mac and Laura talk about running a record label in the era of streaming music, about the advantages of having a company be in Chapel Hill instead of in New York City, and about what goes into a record contract with a band these days. After the break, Laura Balance and Mac McCollum, co-founders of Merge Records. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? Today, we'll be talking about Merge Records. It was founded in 1989 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, when Mac McCann and Laura Balance were in their very early 20s. It's been home to bands like Arcade Fire and Magnetic Fields and Spoon and my personal favorites, Mark Etzel and American Music Club, and their own band that they play in, Super Chunk. Welcome to the show, Mac McCann and Laura Balance. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so how did this all get started? How did Merge Records get started? Well, we were both music fans and uh, fans of going to see bands, buying records, listening to records, record labels. And it was kind of uh, the late 80s, mid to late 80s were kind of a heyday for American independent record labels. Um, and also the local music scene, I'd say. Yes. A lot of bands around here, uh, great record stores, great radio stations at the various colleges around here. So it's a good support system for a music scene. And the labels like K Records and Sub Pop and you know before that, Discord up in D.C. and then Teen Beat in D.C. These were all labels that... Um, we like the bands on on those labels, and we go see the bands on those labels. And the whole, to me, the personality of those labels were kind of approachable and like human size. And so, having a record label seemed like something that anyone could do. And so, did you start out? You were in this this band, uh, which I guess started out being called Chunk, and now it's called Super Chunk. Did it start out with you just releasing your own songs, or were from the very beginning you were you releasing other band songs as well? Um. From the beginning, we were mostly releasing other bands that, um, I guess the first few, Mac was in them all. <laughs> and they were almost like, archive. it was like we, there would be a band that would exist for a couple of years and maybe record a tape and then wouldn't exist anymore. So we kind of started out putting out a couple cassettes. There were like archival releases already, even though the band had just existed the year before or something. You know, It was more like documenting things as they went away. Um, and other local bands that were friends of ours that were great, again, they would often be around for a couple of years and then break up. And so part of it was just making a record of these things that we thought were were really great. And there was also this, this part of the inspiration was it seemed like these great bands would form and be around for a little while and then kind of break up because there was nowhere for them to go beyond playing shows locally, playing parties, and then, you know, they'd kind of peter out. And it seemed like if if we could even do a, a seven inch for these bands, it would give them something that could give them a, a little bit more longevity 
in that they they might be known somewhere beyond the boundaries of our small scene here in the triangle. What did it look like at, at the start? Were you were you selling records in stores or by mail order? Were you advertising? How did people find out about them? What did it look like in the early days? It was pre-internet or pre-internet being something that anybody <laughs> that anyone normal would have. be on. <laughs> right. Um, so we were selling to local record stores and then some of the the other record stores, mainly on the East Coast, that we had some contact with. And also we um, got in, in touch with distributors around the United States and then eventually overseas that we would talk to and, you know, send a sample to, and they would then order 57 inches or something. It was amazing that you could sell 300 or 500 copies of a 7-inch that was recorded in someone's house and kind of weird sounding and had cool cover, and you could sell them out um, through, like Laura was saying, distributors, a lot of which we knew how to get in touch with the distributors because at the record stores, you know, I I worked at School Kids Records in Chapel Hill, Poindexter Records in Durham. You talked to the same people on the phone that were selling you records at the store. You knew that they were the ones that would often be buying from the labels. And so we kind of had a sense of how how that network worked, you know. And one thing that I think is, it's amazing when I think about it now, you know, when we, the first tour that Super Chunk ever did was the summer of 1990. And all we had out was a seven inch. Maybe we had two singles out. But, you know, we were booking shows in Minneapolis and Chicago and Louisville and New York and Boston based on just having a single out and people would come see us. And so that was kind of a cool, like Laura was saying, this thing that if you could get a seven inch out by a band, it would give them a a thing to get out into the world with, you know, and it really worked. Was there a specific moment you remember when you realized, wait, this is like an honest to goodness business. This isn't this isn't just like a labor of love or a pet project or something. This is a real business. Definitely. I think when dealing with distributors more than anything made me feel like it was a real business Um, because it did feel very business like to have to call these people and solicit orders and then also call people and hassle them to get paid. That made me feel like, oh yeah, w- this this is like, this is the real deal. I'm doing something I really don't like. <laughs> right here. <laughs> now I know it's a business. <laughs> uh huh. Was this always like self-funded and friends and family, or or were there points where you went out and tried to get investors to come on board? Uh, it was always friends and family. I think that. I know your dad helped us at some point. And then Glenn Booth was an early, uh, he gave us like $400 to do the Angels of Epistemology 7-inch. Right. It was kind of small amounts of money that we could then pay back because, again, if you figure, well, we only have to sell 500 of these to make the money back or something. Um, so it was $500 here, $400 there, um, and then paying those people back and um, the bands were usually getting paid in uh, copies of the record that they could sell on tour. 
And it just kind of, I mean, you can imagine it grows quite slowly doing it that way, but you also never get too kind of over your head doing it that way. Yeah, we would, any money, any profit we had, we would just plow right back into the company. I think it was at least 10 or 12 years of doing it before Mac or I ever got paid for running Merge. I think the the next big step that made it feel like it was becoming a real company was when we entered into a distribution agreement with Touch and Go Records, which was a long-established label and distributor in Chicago, because that allowed us to put out full-length albums, for which at that point you had to make, if you were going to put out a, an album, you had to make the vinyl and the CD and the, ta- and the tape, um, <laughs> which requires a lot more capital to manufacture all those things. Um, up to that point, we had just been doing uh, tapes and seven inches. So that really opened up what we could do uh, in more of a real way. And we could, not only for our own bands, but we could say to other bands, you know, hey, we want to put your record out in like a real record, not just a single, like an album. And it will be in stores all over the place and on all the formats that you that you want it to be on. So um, that, they weren't investors per se, but Touch and Go really allowed us to grow. What was the first big hit you had that sort of blew your mind with, whoa, wait a second, that, w- that this is a genuine success. <laughs> I think the first Super Chunk 7-inch we put out blew my mind. And, you know, maybe we sold 500 of it. You know, the first pressing went really fast, and that blew my mind. Just that that many people cared about our band and our little 7-inch. So I think the the music industry can be confusing to a lot of people. And so I want you to sort of situate what Merge Records has become now within the landscape of other record labels. Like, are there a lot of other labels that are around your size or are most artists signed to labels that are a lot bigger than you? Or just, just basically, where does a label like Merge fit into the music industry landscape? I mean, this is weird to say, but I don't actually know how big other labels are. Uh, I mean, I know who I think of as our peers. And a lot of it is labels that started around the same time as us, like Matador, or labels that already existed, like Sub Pop, or then labels that have come along pretty soon after, like um, Secretly Canadian. But uh, I don't, even though we have friends that are at all those labels, I don't really have a, a handle on how many people work at those places or what they're, how they're structured or anything. I just I kind of know how we are structured and we're pretty, um, almost all of us live in North Carolina and work in the same office and, you know, which is obviously different than Sony Music or whatever, you know, like places that have offices in various cities and people all over the place. Um, so I think that... We're probably big, in quotes, for independent record labels, but small compared to what people think of as major labels or, you know, um, mainstream How many companies. people work at Merge? I think 16 or something. Plus us. Either it? with us or without us. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um I also, I mean, on this, 
you know, with the other independent labels that Mac just mentioned, I think of us as being on the smaller end of those because partly because we've always we've been less aggressively pro growth, I think, than a lot of them. We've always been a lot more cautious than maybe than we should have been. I don't know. But um, I look at how a lot of other labels do have, you know, independent labels that started around the same time of us as us have offices in London and also over here because they decided, like, you know, we're going to really do this and we're, we're, not, we're not intimidated by the thought of international tax returns where I think my priority personally has been more, yes, I want to run a successful business and I want to do the best we can, but also I want to maintain a normal life that lets me be at home with my kid and where I don't feel like I have to go out of town every week to travel around and, you know, take care of the various offices or, or visit, you know, have business trips all the time. I mean, I think that also this goes back to maybe six or seven years after we, after we started, maybe four or five years after we started, there was a moment in which um, some other labels that had started around the same time as us, like Matador and Sub Pop, either because they grew really quickly and it just made sense or because major labels saw what they thought was an opportunity to cash in on a new kind of music that was becoming popular. The, those other labels formed partnerships or sold part of their company to major labels and grew in that way. And we never did that. I mean, we kind of just kept doing what we were doing, and we partnered with Touch and Go, of course. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, I remember as a band, Super Chunk, touring around that time, and you would, sometimes we would get questions and in interviews that were addressing that and but asking in a way like why don't you want to get big or <laughs> why don't you want to be popular or something because we had not signed to a major label or because Merge had not partnered with Atlantic Records or something like that. Or because we hadn't moved to New York City. Right. Stayed in North Carolina. Um, and so in some ways it was not it was not a difficult choice and it wasn't you know, we never got to some point where someone was like writing down a number on a piece of paper or something like that. And there's a, you know, some dramatic moment where you're making this decision. But it was just like it wasn't really on our list of ways to be, you know. So that was I mean, that's that's one thing I think that, like I said, is different than maybe what some of our some other labels who started around that time did. What what might have been different if if Superchunk had signed to a, a bigger label? How What would have been different for Superchunk? Or what would have been different if you had moved to New York City and, and tried to make it? How, how would those things have been different? I think it would have been harder for us to have... To, we wouldn't still be around, is what I think. Um, you, mean, I think you mean we wouldn't be alive anymore? <laughs> no, I mean the <laughs> band wouldn't be around anymore. Oh, right. um, possibly Merge wouldn't still be around. Partly because operating a business whether it be a band or a record label out of 
Chapel Hill or Durham, for that matter, especially back then, was it was really easy and affordable and and laid back. And there were plenty of places where, as a band, we could go and practice, rehearse with each other without having to lug our stuff there every time or even pay anyone anything extra to be able to do it. Um, and having an office for the label here was affordable. And I also think that not taking money from anyone else really freed us up to keep working with the kind of artists that we wanted to keep working with, which I think that the other labels that that I've been talking about also did that, but for me, even from just like a, a stress and psychological point of view, not feeling like, oh, if this record doesn't do well, so-and-so is not going to be happy or we're going to owe so-and-so money or whatever. Just like that, getting into that way of thinking was really unappealing. And so it was awesome that, you know, you asked about records that got big and surprised us. I mean, the Magnetic Fields 69 Love Songs is something that really did blow up in a way that, you know, was amazing and took us by surprise. And so it was great to have that, but at the same time, it was also great to know that we could put out East River Pipe records knowing that Fred Cornog, who is East River Pipe, was never going to do a tour date in his life, and there was no pressure on him to do that from us. Um, and so just being able to work on different work with different types of artists in the way that made the best sense for them um, is a real kind of freedom that we've had. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Laura Balance and Mac McCon, co-founders of Merge Records. In terms of the kinds of artists that you choose to sign, has that has that evolved with your taste as you get older, or are are you still trying to sign? artists that appeal to people in their early 20s is that challenging as you get older how how has how how has that changed as as your tastes maybe have evolved i think there's there's no predicting what age of person a particular band will appeal to i i think that um i mean trendiness we we can't try to follow you know, because it's impossible or it's it's hard to have any success in trying to follow trends musically. Um, I mean, and the problem with that is, let's say you just decided one day, you know, I'm not that into this band, but man, they seem like they're going to be really popular. <laughs> what if they're not popular? Then you just look like a complete idiot because <laughs> they're, they're, t- they're terrible and they're not popular and you're putting out their record. So, yeah, we can't really... We can't really go down that road. I mean, it is strange. I mean, I, I we just work with bands that we that we love, and um, so there's not a template for that. Though sometimes I do wonder, like, you know, at what point does that does what we love expire as something that is like a good gauge of what kind of records we should be putting <laughs> out? But it's so so far it's working, and you know, we do have a lot of people who work at Merge who hear the stuff before sometimes before we sign the band or that we hear people at merge talking about an artist and so there's we have 
a lot of people much younger than us working at the label, which is always a great kind of um, source of information and energy and, you know, just kind of a sense of like what's happening out there. I think there are a lot of stereotypes about what, what it's like to deal with musicians. So I, I'm wondering what you would say. They're about all true. <laughs> I'm, wondering, yeah, well, I'm wondering, well, you are musicians, but you also have to sort of manage <laughs> or deal with musicians. Do you, I wonder what, what is that like? Do you, do you think it's any different than if you were running, say, like a book publishing house and you're dealing with writers or a visual artist gallery and you're dealing with visual artists or if, you, you know, I don't, if you're running an auto repair shop and you're dealing with mechanics, do you think it is different? Is there, is there, is there anything unique to how musicians <laughs> behave themselves? I think I think not. I think that people are people and there's all different kinds of people no matter what business you're in. I I can imagine authors can be um as much a pain in the butt as any musician or as great and organized and on top of things as any musician, you know? I think that because we are musicians, we are maybe better at um uh, it's one advantage we have, I think, over a lot of other record labels in that we know what it's like to be in the studio and record a record or to be on tour for six weeks and be really tired and not feel like going to a radio station to do an interview you're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> or just to have like idiosyncratic things that you're focused on, you know, like I really need the record sleeve to look this way even though you may not understand it. It's just what's in my mind. Or, you know, like we've we've been in that position and in the position of having to make the record sleeve look that way um, for an artist. Can you explain a little bit about how a record deal works for a band? Like, do they get, are they getting an advance on royalties? Are they signed for a, a duration of time or for a number of albums? Are, what are you paying for? Are you paying for their touring costs or their marketing? How do you split revenues with them? Things like that. Generally, how do deals work with bands? Well, it varies by record label and it varies by band. Um, you know, you can negotiate different things. Um, on Merge, we do profit splits, which is, you know, different than what any major label does does and different than I think a lot of indies do, though I think more and more also have started to operate on a profit split model um, over the years. Can you briefly explain what that means? So we manufacture, promote, distribute a record and pay for all that. And then the money that we get back, we pay for our expenses and then the difference is the profit, and we share that with the band. Um, they probably got an advance against their share of the profit. And that could be for, as you said, they could use that advance to buy a van, so it's kind of tour support, or they could use that advance to pay for their recording, or that's kind of like up to the artist what they do with that. But we, But because they know it's coming out of their profit in the end... I think we have a pretty good dialogue with most bands about being realistic and not wanting to well I guess as a as a counterexample I think a lot of major label deals where you hear bands getting big advances in my experience from talking to those bands the feeling is this is the only money we're ever going to see so we're going to get as much as we can whereas a label like Merge 
we try to work in such a way that records make money and bands do get money on the back end. So taking less up front means it's sooner that your record, you start seeing profit from your record. And do you sign a band for, uh, is it sort of like album to album? It's like what, you're, you're with us for this album and then we see after that, do you sign them for multiple albums do you, or do you sign them for a duration of like a calendar duration of time? How does that work? It depends on the band. Um, sometimes we do one-offs. Um, I, it's our preference usually to have them for multiple albums, but also at the same time, we have those albums for a certain period of time, right? Like seven years, 10 years, 12 years, whatever. Just so that, you know, you have to have, from when you put out the record, you have to have the record to sell for a certain length of time, you know, that makes sense, right? And then yeah, that and after that, it reverts. Point. It reverts back to them, and then they have control over it. Or what happens at the end of that yes. time? Yeah, yeah. At the end of that time, it reverts back to the band, and they have control over it. Um, more often than not, bands renew with us because we usually have happy relationships with our bands, and we just, you know, we we keep the, our catalog and and their catalog and and keep selling it. So it's basically a license. We're licensing the recording from the band for X amount of time. And you, so you have you have bands that vary in terms of the, of their fame. And I'm wondering what's different for you as a company if you're trying to accommodate a band that's gotten really big, um, like Arcade Fire, one of your bands. I think they had a number one album. They they're they're pretty big. And I and I'm wondering how is that different than a smaller band? And and can a band get too big for you? Like, is there a limit to what Merge could do for a band? I don't feel like we've ever, we've never experienced a band getting too big for us. Um, Arcade Fire, it was, you know, putting out an Arcade Fire album is definitely more work than putting out a Super Junk album, for instance. Um, There's a lot more moving parts you have to coordinate and, um, you know, there's more, uh, more of an upfront investment and as a band like that, you know, um, as Arcade Fire got bigger, their their organization, their own organization grew. So in some ways, they're taking on more responsibilities themselves as a band because they were very ambitious and they had, with each record, you know, they had a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts, films they wanted to make, videos they wanted to produce in addition to the album itself. Um, and so... You know, an artist like that, like they have a lot of ideas, and to to make those things happen, you know, they have a lot of people that work with them that that they're not at merge. So it's still a partnership with an artist, but in some ways, it's a partnership with a, a larger group of people than just, you know, like when it's super chunk, it's the it's the band members working with the label, you know. So it's it's different, but it's you know, like Laura said, it's not something that we can't that we can't do. What's it like when a band leaves you for another label? It makes me very sad. I cry a lot. It's uh yeah, that's a stressful thing and um especially because you know, we have good relationships with with our artists even the ones that leave and uh you feel like you're doing everything you can to help their help their record succeed and help their music get out there. Um, and so, of course, if they decide to go somewhere else, you wonder, like, well, what, you know, 
what could we have done differently? You know, what could we have done better? Um, and sometimes it's just a band wants a change of scenery. Sometimes it's um, a manager thinks that the band needs to do something different. Sometimes it's that someone has more money to offer. It's, it can be anything really, you know, but uh, we have we have a good relationships with artists that we used to work with but don't anymore because, you know, we were working with them for a reason in the first place. That's because we like them. When you started out, you're, you know, you're releasing these seven-inch singles on vinyl and you're releasing cassette tapes. And now so much of music is about digital streaming. So uh, I'm curious how streaming has changed your business and, and, and your thoughts about how it's changed the music business in general. Hmm. That's a, that's a long conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know it is, but maybe we can get into it a little bit. Um, I mean, I think that um, it's put especially independent labels, but everyone in the music business really in kind of a precarious situation. But I think it's especially hit small and medium-sized labels the hardest, and not just because major labels that are part of multinational conglomerates probably own part of the streaming services and are making money a couple different times during that whole process. But, you know, we luckily still have a, a fan base, or I don't know what you would call it, people who are fans of bands that are on Merge um, and independent music generally are also people that still support paying for music and want to support the artists that they love and still buy records and even still buy some CDs and some downloads. Um, but of course, the convenience of streaming is has a powerful allure. Um, it's just that it's very hard to get paid for the art that you make if the way that people are consuming it is free. How do, how do your revenues from streaming work? And specifically, I have a question from a coworker who said she pays for Spotify premium and is wondering, like, does that matter to you at all? Do you, does that make any difference to your bottom line if she pays for Spotify premium? It does. Yes. For sure. Though, if, you know, if each person is paying, what is it, $9.99 a month or something, that amount of money is getting split over everything they listen to for the whole month. And it it adds up for an individual artist just very, very, very slowly. You know, I'm, I'm sure you, everybody's heard. It's fractions of cents each time a, an album gets played. Um, and so it's definitely changed our revenue stream. But I feel like the music business is always evolving. And prior to streaming becoming very popular, downloads were very popular for a while. And that was, that was, that was crazy. That was an amazing, crazy way to make money. Because <laughs> you didn't, I mean, it was practically free money, you know? And the, because the you have, you're not printing the, you're not making the album. You're, there's no manufacturing costs. There's no di- shipping costs. It just lives on the internet, and people just pay you to listen to it. Yeah, or to download. You know that like it was a it was a much better margin than streaming. Um, and I think in some ways that kind of spoiled a lot of us into thinking that like okay, you know. You can make a living in the music business. We're going to survive this digital thing after all. Um, but 
I, you know, I'm afraid it did make a lot of bands think, oh, you can make a living just being a band. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to be in a band and I'm going to live on it and I won't have to have another job. And where we are right now sort of reminds me of how things were when Mac and I started the label. You didn't make a living being in a punk rock band. You were going to have to have a day job. Though I think that when we started, though, yes, we were operating on this very kind of punk rock, low level, putting out seven inches, and which no one would look at and say, like, yeah, that's going to be a good career. But I feel like until uh, streaming became the dominant way that people listen to music, there was more of a middle class, for lack of a better word, in the music industry. And... I think that the the way that streaming has devalued music and what people think that they should pay for music um, and what artists can make from their music, I think really concentrates, has concentrated wealth in the hands of the people who are just like making, the people who make money are the companies that are, the, the technology companies. And all the, the content that artists are providing is like, has has been devalued to a point that's not good for the overall ecosystem of art and music specifically. Um, so, I mean, that's a tough, it's a tough reality um, that the artists that we work with and people and labels like Merge are dealing with every day. And I think that in some ways we've approached it like we've approached every kind of change that's come along like when vinyl went away, and then when vinyl came back, and then downloads, and now streaming, you know, we've kind of just kept doing what we're doing, which I think is a good approach, while also kind of keeping one eye on, like, how can we adjust to the new reality, and is there anything that you can really actively do, or can you just kind of react, you know? I'm hoping that that the technology will continue to evolve in some way that that eventually does make things more fair again but we'll see okay i want to ask some questions about your your management styles running this this company how do you split things up in terms of your responsibilities and and are there any places where your your visions for the company kind of conflict i have traditionally been more of a purse strings person um I deal with a lot of the accounting side of the business and negotiating deals, contracts. Mac has tended to be out there looking for bands more. We both, you know, we both listen to them and decide. I don't know, Mac. What do you What do you do? Yeah, that seems that seems. I mean, in broad terms, I think A and R is like a weird. Way to way to say it, but um, yeah, I'm always buying records, going to see bands, listening to stuff online, looking for looking for bands, and just but not in a I don't know I don't feel like I'm on a mission to go like find a new band because we have a lot of great bands that we already work with, but um, I, I would say that I'm kind of out there in the world a little bit more than Laura in terms of traveling and you know being the person from Merge at South by Southwest in addition to other people who work there, that kind of thing, public facing. But uh, 
you know, like Laura said, in terms of bands that we work with, we both always have to, has to be something that we're both into and, um, which is good because we'd probably have a lot more bands. We'd probably have way too many bands on the label if we, if we both didn't have to agree on, on the bands that we were signing. Have there ever been moments where you've sort of disagreed on a general direction for the company? Um, let's see. I don't know. We've never we really like put... radically moved about around in different yeah. directions. Um, I think there might be more free jazz on the label <laughs> if I wasn't such a turd. Um, <laughs> I think that um, we've disagreed at times just about uh growth because I am super cautious I'm more cautious than Mac and and f- fiscally and we've butted heads sometimes about that but it all works out eventually you know <laughs> it all works out eventually that's why I'm so like yeah let's just give that person the money they want the, the record's gonna be great don't worry it's all <laughs> gonna work out eventually okay I'm gonna move us on to our lightning round are you ready for the lightning round yeah uh oh <laughs> Um, what is the mistake you've made in the past that you've learned the most from? Well, this is like a weird answer because I don't think it was a mistake to not use contracts, which we did not for like the first 10 years of our existence. But I think it's, we had a couple experiences where we decided we needed to start using contracts. And I think that was also a good idea. Meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you do meetings at Merge? I kind of hate them, but we do them. Um, They're helpful. They are helpful sometimes. We have a weekly meeting and then lots of other meetings in between. And it is amazing how you can actually hash things out better sitting and talking with people rather than emailing back and forth. That can go on forever and you never have an answer. (laughs) If there's one thing you've learned in, in 30 years of running a business that might be helpful to, to anybody who, who runs a business or is thinking of running a business, what would that lesson be? Um, you should talk about the business stuff. Don't be scared of it. Talking about the, a money is not an uncomfortable, scary thing. It is more uncomfortable and scary if you haven't talked about it. And then you get to the end of something and, and you know, you look at each other like, okay, now what? You know? Talking about things in general, I think, is good. Putting things out on the table. Yes. I mm-hmm. think is general. Yes. You know, it's amazing how many people idea. are like, I, I'm sorry I have to ask, but, you know, can we have an advance? I'm like, of course we're going to talk about this now. Let's do it. I mean, I would also say more broadly than that. If you're starting a business that is is like a labor of love for you, like you just know that that's what it is going into it, like it might work out and it might not work out, go into it knowing that that's why you're doing it and set it up so that it can succeed as that even if it doesn't succeed as a business juggernaut. Okay, final question. If I fired you both from Merge Records and from Superchunk tomorrow, and you could never do anything in the music world again, <laughs> what would you do with your lives? Oh gosh. You said uh, this was a lightning round, not something we had to think about for a long time. I would- <laughs> in, in three words. I, wanted, <laughs> I would take classes. I want to take painting classes. Um, 
I would go back to school and um, I would become some sort of scientist and I would save the planet. Um, Wait, if you can save the planet, what are you doing? Well, I have to go back to school first. Fire me, would you? Retire now. Jeez. If that's what we're waiting for to save the planet is for you to quit the label? Someone fire me. Um, But wait, you're saying it would have to be a – if Laura can just quit and, like, paint, then that's what I'm going to do too. Or does it have to be a job? No, no. I mean, I think I just asked what would you do with your life. You could interpret that either what would you do to make a living or just, you know, how would you spend your days? I think that I would like to try visual art because that would be another way of not having to get a real job. You don't have a real job. Uh, I know. I'm saying I'm, that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> and if I, but if I couldn't do this not real job, then I would still have another not real job. Uh, Mac McCon and Laura Balance, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.